Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on Lewis Hamilton's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix victory and discuss Robert Kubica's Fairy Tale F1 return. Abu Dhabi Grand Prix was a fitting end to the 2018 Formula One season, with Lewis Hamilton taking his 11th victory of a remarkable year ahead of title rival Sebastian Vettel. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me in my downtown Abu Dhabi hotel room at uh, quarter to two in the morning uh, to look back at an eventful weekend on and off track, first is Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, you've loved Abu Dhabi so much, you're staying on here for the next few days. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I have the pleasure of sticking around for the Pirelli tyre test. Um, which only really upon proper reflection this evening as we were packing up did I realise probably going to be lacking data, probably going to be lacking knowledge of tyres, probably going to be lacking media time with the relevant personnel. So I'm not really sure what I'm staying out for. Uh, You will find out what's going on, Scott. We know what you're like. But you have Kimi Reichen in a Sauber, Charles Leclerc in a Ferrari. Oh, there's loads to look at. Yeah, loads loads to look at. My my favourite way of describing it, I think I've managed to get it into couple of news stories and at least a dozen messages to our colleagues has been lots of new faces in new places uh, that's going to be quite exciting I think everyone except Daniel Ricardo, who's switching teams next year and is, is going to be appearing in the test um, and then obviously a couple of uh, complete new faces in in George Russell and, and Lando Norris and I look forward to seeing Robert Kubica back in the car at Williams Exactly, yeah, yeah. Lots to follow there, and uh, contrary to what Scott suggests, there'll be plenty on autosport.com, I'm sure. We'll, uh, oh, I'll write we'll stuff, I just up. don't know if I'll know very much. <laughs> well, you could always say that about what you're doing. Uh, also joining me is Jack Benyon. Now, your primary Who? focus has been, exactly, yeah, it's a, well, actually, he was on, on one recently, but occasionally on the post-Grand Prix podcast, you've been in the next room, so uh, yeah, it's good. Now, you've been following Formula 2 and GP3 all season, and you've just come from the awards, in fact. So was that a, uh, a great celebration of a dramatic year? It was an enjoyable evening. It was nice to see George Russell claim his, his trophy for winning the Formula 2 championship. Also saw Carlin in their first year in Formula 2, as, it, as it's been named, take their championship as well. And also there were some, some other fam- familiar faces around as well, like uh, Billy Munger was there after... Uh, completing some uh, some rudimentary tests of uh, escaping a car 
uh, very fitting after Nico Hulkenberg's uh, crash in the race. Um, and he's looking at doing Formula 3 next year. Uh, that's Billy Munger, not Nico Hulkenberg. Um, so, yeah, it was good to see uh, and, and catch up with him and find out what he's been up to. And, yeah, en- enjoyable. Uh, Esteban Gutierrez was there as well. And, uh, yeah, there was some lots of familiar faces. Very nice way to end the year uh, and good to see some uh, some very good champions crowned and, and given trophies. Did you dress like that for the awards? No, I, I got changed. Just for the listeners' pleasure, Jack Benyon, very handsome man, but he's uh, he's wearing shorts and flip-flops at the moment. The, good, the saving grace is he's not wearing socks and sandals, but I trust you were slightly more dressed up. The, the great news is that this part's going to get cut, so no one will ever hear that. Oh, uh, they will, they will. I'm a little bit disappointed, though, because I do operate a fairly strict dress code for the podcast, which I've been trying to ramp up. It won't be long before people... You're meant to be nude. No, it's it's going to be dinner jackets. That's what we're going to need, need all the way. Because, of course, we're going to be in our dinner jackets next weekend for the Autosport Awards. So we've all got them. Yeah, but I know you well enough, Ed, to know that if you were in control of anything and, and had to implement a dress code, it would absolutely not involve dinner jackets. Yeah, I'm perhaps that's perhaps not my natural habitat. I've just noticed that there's a giant crack in the mirror in the hotel room. and You'd think for all the world that I've got furious with something and just kicked it. Well, you've got seven years bad luck, and that starts with having me on the podcast, clearly. I've had almost 40 years bad luck already. I don't need another seven. Well, shall we actually get on with things? Uh, Scott, on track. Lewis Hamilton took pole position. Mighty lap, found half a second on his final run in Q3. Went on to take victory. Obviously, the interesting thing in the race was the fact he ended up on a slightly different strategy to the other front runners, pitting under the under the virtual safety car. So it wasn't quite a lights-to-flag win, but consummate victory as usual, wasn't it? Yeah, generous use of the word interesting. There was very little that was interesting about that race. It was. Uh, I, I know when you when you opened this podcast, you said it was a, a fitting fitting end to the season. Well, you I can say that many ways. I, I assume you mean because Lewis won. Yes, the best driver on the grid on the grid this year ended the season with with a win. It certainly the season was definitely much more interesting than uh, than this this Grand Prix. Um, but but Lewis was brilliant, and what I find really impressive is that uh, I know we were talking about this on the way on the way home earlier that. Um, maybe tyres ultimately weren't really a, a limiting factor in that race, but I'm still impressed by how Lewis sort of kept it together after a bit of a little bit of a, a dip mentally, sort of maybe when he went when he came back out after that early pit stop, because he seemed to be worrying that his tyres really weren't capable of going to the end. But this Toto talked after the after the race, Toto Wolf, Mercedes team boss, that we've seen a new Lewis, and that the his performance after wrapping up the title is further evidence of that this year and I have to agree because he victory in this race was his 11th of the season as you said that's that's matched his personal best you think that this is comfortably the toughest challenge that Mercedes has faced in its dominant all-conquering v6 turbo hybrid era and and he's and he's matched his record hole he's won more than half the races that's absolutely astonishing I think it's just all about grinding the opposition into into dust, isn't it? That's what he seems to have decided to do. Yeah, well, he's absolutely um, he's he's demolished everybody, hasn't he? He's he's uh, he's turned Valtteri Bottas from a promising free win driver from last season into a, and admittedly some other factors involved, but Bottas is what the first Mercedes driver not to win a race in a season since Schumacher in 2012. Must uh, yeah. be. Yeah, so, 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 so it's a really bad season statistically for Bottas. Uh, Hamilton's gone wheel to wheel and and put Vettel in the shade, and he's ultimately more mature and more rounded than Max Verstappen because Max is bloody hell. Max is what twelve years younger than Lewis, something like that. So, so Lewis is just the most complete driver on the grid. Uh, and I, I've said before that I don't even think Alonso would necessarily beat him this year. And I think this race was just the, the the perfect way for him to cap a season in which he is uh, he's probably hit new heights. Of course, Alonso could use his secret weapon, which is shortcutting the track, which he did three times fun. in the closing stages. Quite funny, wasn't it? <laughs> Fifteen seconds of penalties he got for that. What did you guys make of of Hamilton's strategy? How how obvious was it to make that strategy call at, at that point in the race in, in terms of what they were doing? Well, I, I, think I with, thought it was quite obvious, but you disagreed. Well, no, you? no, with with two cars, it's obvious, but they basically you, you would have wanted to pit one of the two because they had Hamilton running from Bottas so basically it puts Hamilton effectively on the alternate strategy if he hadn't pitted probably Vettel or one of the Red Bulls or both would have tried to try to do it. So they were they were kind of there was never to be going to be a divergence there. It was interesting to hear Hamilton talk after the race on the on the on the grid after the race about 
you know, trusting the engineers and the the decisions they were making, the guys behind the scenes and the, the calls they have to make. Um, and obviously hearing you guys talk about uh, what strategy they should have been on. Um, Lewis was obviously not entirely sure at that point that he was on the correct strategy, but has talked a little bit about having to trust the guys behind the scenes. And we've not always seen that be perfect for Mercedes this year, have we, in terms of the, the calls they made with strategy. So Hamilton having to put a bit of faith in the team there. Well, even last last race in Brazil, they got they got it slightly wrong, didn't they? And Lewis said that, that even though this was one of those races where they were told that you could probably have done an entire race distance on a set of tyres, he explained that it it never just it just never really feels like that when you first come out of the pits because you're on a new set of tyres, everything feels a little bit alien, the car's still really heavy with fuel, so it's just not a good feeling that you're getting from the car. And then by extension, you think, well, well, if this is this bad now, how bad is this going to be when the tyres are 45, 48 laps old, whatever it is, by the end end of the stint? So I think that's what he's worried about. And and he just said, you basically, once you work through that and you realise that actually sort of it's coming together quite well, you're not sh- you're not shipping shed loads of time, then I think he realised he actually had the race under control. And he never really looked under threat that he had uh, he had Bottas at more than arm's length for, for most of the race. And then when Vettel took advantage of Bottas's problems. He, he he never really came under proper pressure from from Vettel either. Yeah, Vettel for a, once he got clear into second place, he he, he closed in at about point two oh nine on that, but that was not a problem. Hamilton had that well covered. In fact the eventual gap at the line, which was two point five eight one seconds, one point two seconds Hamilton had given away on the last lap, just sort of touring towards the towards the line. So it was it was very, very comfortable victory for Hamilton from Vettel. And of course uh, Max Verstappen got his fifth consecutive podium in third. Now, Jack, we've mentioned Bottas briefly, but he's gone twelve months without a victory. So he hasn't won a race this year. His last win was Abu Dhabi last season. He's ended the season with 247 points compared to Hamilton's 406. He's lost fourth in the championships of Verstappen, so he's fifth overall. It's difficult race kind of sums up his season, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's it's difficult to kind of analyse where Bottas has been at this year, isn't it? Because we've seen him have quite a few uh, problems with the uh, the puncture in Baku. Um, Bahrain was uh, a strategy mistake, wasn't it? And uh, there's a few other incidents we've had across the year, like um, China, for example, where the safety car came out, a bit of an inopportune time for him. So that win may have come in, in any of those uh, scenarios. Well, but Russia as well, which he, did, which he did win, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, Ru- could, you could have, being generous, you could say there's easily four wins there. I think Russia, stretch, but. Russia, you could potentially argue, is the, the most obvious one, wasn't it? You know, that was a that was definitely a, a call by the team to to make that strategy work and and give Hamilton the, the best possible opportunity to to do well in that race. But yeah, I think it's it's difficult to work out where he's at, but it's it's clear he's not at Hamilton's level this year, isn't it? Um how much of that is a step up from Hamilton this year? You know, we talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about how we feel Hamilton is uh gone to another level if you like um bit of a cliche to say that but you know that's that's kind of what we're getting at isn't it so has as Bottas just been left behind slightly by uh Hamilton raising his game or as as Bottas decreased in performance I mean his average average finishing positions around fourth this year um no wins as you mentioned after scoring three last year and two poles compared to the four that he scored last year as well so uh underwhelming year is the is the best way uh, I can put it and I think also coming in, also being factored in is the fact that you know if you got Ocon on the sidelines. Um, there was talk about Russell earlier in the season uh, potentially needing a seat somewhere. Um, Mercedes have got some talent on their books, and and Valtteri is going to have to really step it up next year to, to keep his seat. I think. I think once that first sort of run of races passed, and he and he didn't win, and then he had um, things like pole in Austria, and he turned that into third, didn't he, by the first corner, I think, um, and. And then you had like Lewis winning from what was it fourteenth on the grid in Germany, just because of the way that race un- unfolded towards when the when the rain came and the safety car w- w- was out. Like you just saw so many things going away from Bottas, and I just think once it became clear that they just had to prioritise Hamilton in the championship, it just had this mental snowball because we haven't really. You you point out those missed opportunities, and with the exception of Russia, where Bottas I believe has always been strong and obviously won there last year. What have been his standout performances since race ten eleven? Have have there been any? Uh, not really. No. I mean, 
his missed opportunities came in the, at the start of the year when everything was on an even yeah. playing field. Ultimately, I think what you're looking at with Valtteri Bottas is a very good driver, but you're looking at a very good driver being being made to look ordinary by an extraordinary driver. And actually, if you look at Bottas at the sort of seat, the, the basement of his performances does seem to have been raised. He had quite a difficult time in the second half of last season, but we haven't seen so many quite so big qualifying gaps. So what was he? He was just over a tenth and a half behind Hamilton here. You know, that's not... That's not when you're ridiculous. talking when you're talking about comparing him to a driver that you could make a legitimate case of being the, the best F1 driver of all time. I'm not certainly I'm not advocating that in this moment. That's an entirely different podcast. But he's the most successful driver of his era. He's one of the most successful drivers of all time. For Bottas to be Bottas must only be averaging between a tenth two tenths off him over the course of the season. You're go like up against literally the best driver on the grid, the guy who is so clearly happy in himself and within the team at the moment. I, I don't think Bottas is doing a bad job at all. If he was at McLaren he'd get dropped because that's what they've done with Van Dorn versus Alonso. But I, I I think he's I think he's doing a, a decent job. He's, you're right, it just it looks worse because of who he's up against. I'd like to see a few more of these races, a few fewer of these races where things unravel. He's not been brilliant on tire management this year. That's something he can uh, he can improve on and he's a little bit soft in battle at times. Those are some of the areas where I think he needs to improve. We saw a mistake with, with Vettel today, didn't we, that, that allowed him pass. So, yeah, I think you're definitely right there. And you mentioned there's a possible braking problem, but to be honest with what he said, it suggested it was more down to the wind changing you know, into the chicane. So I think probably you're looking more towards a driver there. I think, Scott, you mentioned the, the mental side of things. I think it must be very difficult for him to, to compete against Lewis with all this momentum that Lewis has behind him. People talking every race about how he stepped up, and you know, we've, from probably from the midpoint of the season, we've been talking about how Lewis has, you know, found a bit, another step, and you know, people within the team and outside the team discussing where they think Hamilton has has made these improvements and things like that. Bottas has has got to turn up every weekend and listen to everyone talking about how good his teammate is uh, and struggling to match him, and and you know, there's only so many things Bottas can do each weekend to to try and rectify that, and it you know, it must be very difficult mentally for him to to approach that. I think Toto's right when he says that, that that Bottas needs to just go away, basically, for a bit and just sort of uh, eliminate this from his mind and come to, to, to a point. Obviously, you need to... Um, he, he needs to basically let go of the disappointment of this season but use the areas that he knows he needs to improve to focus on and target and come out swinging at the start of 2019 because that that will shape next season and then... And then you'll have the opposite. If, if Bottas comes out and wins one or two of the first few races, um, or it, at the very least has the edge on Hamilton, then then you'll see a you'll see a positive effect. You'll see him suddenly get stronger and stronger. He'll be he'll walk into the paddock with a, a, a bigger stride, and and he'll just he'll just be in a more positive place from the beginning. And and as I say, we'll we'll see the reverse of what we've seen as this year's progressed. Yeah, and he said a few times in the last couple of races that. The race have kind of summed up his season, so he's definitely in that mind mindset of yeah, things are just going against me. So a reset will probably uh, probably help him. Can I swear on this podcast? Can I quote Bottas? Because I just thought it was quite re- relevant. It was just quite a nice little summary, wasn't it? He said it started well and then it all went to bleep. Kind kind of sums up uh, sums up where he's at. I mean, he did say there was the slight suspicion about a problem with the right rear at one stage, and they brought him in for, once he dropped back to fifth. They brought that was him after for the contact, pass. wasn't it? Yeah, although the contact was on the left side of the car. Well, of course, that pass Verstappen on Bottas for for third place that gave uh, gave Verstappen his, his fifth consecutive podium. Ricardo finished fourth. This, of course, is the the final race for Red Bull with the the Renault engines, and there was a certain irony in in the fact Verstappen got a face full of, of Honda oil from Pierre Gasly's Toro Rosso in the closing stages, and then he'd used all up all his uh, tear offs. So he kept saying he couldn't see anything in the in the last few laps. It, Obviously, there's this big excitement with Verstappen and Red Bull to get onto the Honda era and say goodbye to Renault. Is that a little bit of a warning that uh, the grass isn't necessarily always greener and there's still a long way to to go for Honda, Scott? Well, I asked Christian Horner this after the race and he pointed out that it's not like their reliability has been particularly mega this year. So (laughs) I think it's kind of like if you're going to go from an engine that's causing you reliability problems in a dozen Grand Prix out of 21 to one that's had it... I think that's... Is is that... the first Honda reliability failure in a race for I'm trying to think quite a while. I don't think they've had one in the last few races. I think, but but then of course you could argue that Honda are changing the engine every other race, so maybe reliability is not exactly their forte. But 
yeah, uh, Horner tried to dismiss it. I, I think it shows that they're not exactly switching to a proven, mature package. It's, it's the potential of it that, that excites them the most. Um, I, I was really tempted to ask Christian that in, in a race in which they said farewell to Daniel Ricciardo and Renault, who they're going to miss most. But then I thought, actually, I probably need to get some material from this media session. I don't want to annoy him at the first question. Yeah, well, I think they'll, uh, they'll they'll certainly miss uh, miss having Ricardo, who's uh, done some great things for them. And I suspect, uh, yeah, Ricardo's off for a, a fairly challenging mission with Renault. Well, I quite enjoyed the fact that he had such a long stint, the first stint, and I know that was because obviously they wanted to shorten his stint on a on a, on a theoretically a better tire, I guess. But uh, and cover the VS uh, yeah, possibility because yeah, yeah. he jumped I, second with one of those. I looked at it more as a charitable exercise of from Red Bull, just letting him re- lead a race for a little bit longer, just as a little bit of a, you're probably not going to be doing this for a while, so enjoy it while you can. Well, it's not impossible. He'll never win another Grand Prix. Be a great shame if he doesn't, but the bloody, history bloody of... hell, Captain Pessimistic. Well, no, interestingly, when the deal was signed, I did a little bit of a, a piece for, uh, for Autosport Plus, looking back at drivers who've left race winning teams at the end of a season to teams that that season were not winning races and it's not a great history it's pretty bad actually you get occasional but for the most part it's usually bad well it's because you that tends to happen because the driver's not quite good enough and gets binned off and picked up by a lesser team don't, don't they presumably often but there are also times where oh, no, people have made, sure. uh, made ill-advised uh, ill-advised departures so yeah the the history's not perfect i mean it's it's ultimately it's going to be he's, he's got a two-year deal actually with renault it's, it's a long game he's playing there and i think while swapping a, a red bull for a renault fundamentally is not necessarily the right move i think it's fairly clear that for him he did need to change something i think that's what's pushed him into to making the move so that that's uh, i think he's quite energized by that challenge and being being the main man at renault it was good to see him um end the year getting one over on verstappen in qualifying but didn't quite work out that way in the race did it i mean his charge at the end sort of didn't last very long did it when he came out on fresh tires it was like oh blindingly quick oh and then he hit traffic and made no progress yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I mean, leaving him out for a while in, in the hope of the VSC because for quite a long time he could have he could have jumped up for second if there was a safety car or a virtual safety car. So you, you kind of pay a pay a price for that, but you reap the rewards if you uh, if you stay out. And then because he was the reason we're way back, and there was no great need to harass uh, harass his teammate a huge amount. That uh, maybe meant there was uh, there was no chance for podium. But yeah, um, you know, solid finish for for Red Bull. They they were pretty quick again in in race conditions, so a good platform future but yeah while honda could well be a step forward from renault there's a long way to go for honda to get up to mercedes ferrari level and of course scott it was also a very tight battle for midfield honors uh, the unofficial class b champion nico hulkenberg exits it spectacularly on the first lap pitched into a roll by contact with roman grosjean the steward said racing incident what say you uh, I'll, I'll agree that it's a racing incident, but only because it happened on the first lap. I think if that accident happens um, at any other point, I'd probably blame Hulkenberg more because I just turns into the apex and there's nowhere for Grosjean to go. Because he's already pinned him to the outside. Yeah, exactly. The so, uh, I might be revising my opinion as I speak, actually, because on the first lap, you've got to be aware that there are cars around. Like It's not like... It's not like he's been on his own for several laps and all of a sudden the car's appeared. So he should be a bit more wary. And second, and you're right, he did run him wide into the corner. So he knew that Grosjean was on it. They didn't have to see him. He knew that the car was there. So I've changed my opinion. It's entirely Hulkenberg's fault. I think it's one of those things that when you have an incident like that and you've got one driver on their head, they just sort of think, well, you're out. Let it go. There's a, a brilliant user I mean, I mean, opinion I, there, Scott. I think I think there is I think there is sometimes that that uh, force with with stewarding that there's a bit of a natural justice to. So to they looked at it and just went, "He's probably not come out of it. He's not gained an advantage from this bit of." Uh, yeah, he's definitely not catching that <laughs> and rejoining. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, I I did feel sorry for for Grosjean, who I thought actually came across really really well over the team radio because I, I, I'm laughing just because I remember thinking it was really funny at the time. That he just sort of goes, is he okay? Yeah, I think he's okay. Good, because it was entirely his fault. <laughs> you you revising your opinion there, Scott, reminded me of my uh, most hated thing in football, which is when referees give uh, they give free kicks on the halfway line, but won't give them if they're in the penalty box, which is 
a disgrace in my opinion because you just apply the rules to the to the same space and I think you should apply the same rules on the first lap as you would. I think I think in anywhere the, else in the I race. Think on the I first think, lap I there are slightly different rules because uh, at other points of the race you don't have multiple cars jockeying for position. So it's just a, it's just a slightly different scenario but in that situation you behave ex- because it's it's two cars racing each other and he just pushed him wide. So that situation is exactly the same in that at that point on the first lap as it would be if it happened on lap 53 or 55. So that's why I revised my opinion because at first I thought, oh, maybe no first lap. And then I actually thought about what actually happened in the incident and went, no, that was Hulk's fault uh, more than much more than it was Grosjean's. I think ultimately the outcome has uh, has played a part in, in there being no action on that. And Grosjean did pick up a little bit of damage, actually. It, it did have a little bit of an impact on, uh, on the car. They didn't change his nose uh, at, at the pit stop. Not as much damage as Hulk got. No, Hulk, Hulkenberg got a, little, got a little bit more, uh, a little bit more damage. Hulk, Hulk's gone to the the Michael Essien school of football there, hasn't he? And he's uh, he's committed the foul, and then he's gone down and pretended to be injured while while he's down. Excellent, Michael Essien <laughs> reference. Yeah, we don't get many of those on the uh, the old sport podcast. Ed, what was your reaction when you saw Hulk's car like barrel rolling off and then ending up upside down? I thought, ooh, stuff happening. Good. Yeah, part. I mean, me- I mean, ultimately, to to sound slightly less callous. When you see an accident like that, you can see it going over, but they're sort of designed for that. He didn't hit anything hard. So actually, I wasn't especially worried about it. The, the, the accidents you want to be worried about are the very, very fast stops. That was quite an extended extended one. So I wasn't especially worried about it. It was just kind of... Well, the bit that worried me was shenanigans. Uh, uh, the, the, the sort of flicker of flame and the fact that it came to a rest upside down because you kn- they, obviously the car, the engine and all that, they're not designed to be upside down, are they? So it... It just there's always that element for me anyway. Being someone who's maybe a little bit of a very much on on the first degree of understanding how engines work and the technologies involved. When you see it upside down, you think, "Oh, that's that probably can't that can't be good." And then you see a bit of fire, and you go, "Well, that's definitely not good." And then it just becomes a case of right, is this going to get worse? And I and I didn't know. I've got no frame of reference there for whether that should or shouldn't escalate. So there was a bit of me just like. They better put that out quickly, and I hope that they get the car on four wheels quickly. Because a load of people were complaining that if oh, if it wasn't for the halo, Hulk would have just wriggled out. But Charlie Whiten explained afterwards that the procedure there is to get the car on four wheels before the driver gets out, if if you can. Yeah, it's, it's so 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 there. that's why Hulk didn't get out of the car because they the, were waiting to write write the car properly. It's also a good idea not for the not to have the drivers doing that because they never know what kind of impact's been had and kind of assessing yourself for injuries that kind of thing is not a good idea so it's a good idea just to take a little bit of time also you never know how you're going to fall out the car like if ultimately if you're upside down then gravity's working against you to have a controlled exit if you see what i mean so if you are upside down in the car like that and you take the belts off and you try and wriggle out how much control can you actually have about how gracefully you fall to the ground I, I would think so i don't think i'm being naive well, so. the, the, i think the turning over the car as well is to to attend to the driver if they've got any injuries isn't it as well you know if they've you know if they've injured their back or something like that you need them turned over so that you know the, the medical teams can operate but what was the situation with the halo because i was quite interested to see you know we've seen the halo tested a few times this year with wheels hitting it and things like that but i think this is at least if it's not the first and it's one of the first instances where we've seen a car pinned upside down while we've had the halo yes yeah, so. it is the first and, and and this is another thing that whiting addressed which is this is another area that the halo is supposed to help because it puts a little bit more space between the driver and the ground basically the idea is it's meant to ease that process and pe- this is the thing like i think people got confused by the length of time it took for us to see hulk get out of the car they confuse that with the halo stopping him from being able to get out. When and obviously we had the amusing radio message where he said, "I'm hanging like a cow." <laughs> so I can only assume that he briefly thought he was in the world's warmest abattoir, but he just needed to wait. The trackside staff needed to arrive. The medical staff needed to arrive. The car needed to be flipped over, and then he needed to get out. They they knew immediately that he was okay. So at that point, it became a case of, right, let's do this properly and not rush it and, and, and do anything silly. I think overall, it's one of those spectacular incidents, but it's all kind of within acceptable parameters, should we say, which is why it wasn't uh, wasn't uh, the too worrying. I'm sure it was uh, one of those things that was slightly concerning for uh, Hulkenberg at the time. But Well, we should point out that Hulkenberg is okay and has immediately been passed fit by the 
the, yep. the FIA med- medical staff. So he's due to drive in the test, I believe, sharing with Artem Markolov. So we'll see him back behind the wheel literally tomorrow. Yep, the right way Maybe up. in two days. I don't actually know if he's driving on t- Tuesday or Wednesday. I've said something I, sh- I shouldn't have said there. That was a bit stupid of me. It's also quarter past two in the morning, so nobody knows what day it is or anything any- anymore. And most people don't listen to me anyway, so this is fine. Pardon? Uh, that was a good joke from me there. Uh, well, let's. Uh, what else do we have? Yeah, Carlos Sainz. He did get sixth place. Uh, was a Didn't really end good, up upside down. Yeah, kept it on the on the on the ground all the way through the race. Actually, a really good drive from Sainz. He was running eleventh early on, and then he extended his ultra soft start stint and managed to jump Ocon, Leclerc, Perez, Grosjean. Really, really strong drive from from Carlos Sainz. A nice way for him to to end his season. Yeah, nice to see Sainz end his. Uh, Renault stint with with a, a good drive like that. It was um, I was speaking to him earlier in the weekend, and he said that he was really really gutted that he didn't have any big points hauls or didn't have many big points hauls to show for his best weekends. And I was trying to get him to pin down what his best drive was, and he named li- he literally named a quarter of the races that had been held up to that point as contenders. I thought like, this isn't helping. But one that stands out for me, and you might agree with this, Ed, is Japan. When he hustled a car that looked like nowhere near a top 10 car on Friday into 10th. Yeah, it was a point from nothing, basically. And I think this drive was up there with with that for just perseverance and opportunism. He, he made the most of the fact that he wasn't starting on the hypers and that he was the first of those um, of not to get into Q3. So had the the, the, the tyre choice flexibility, he executed a brilliant... Long first stint, and 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 he and he nicked ahead in the in the class B battle. I think it was, did you say earlier this earlier this evening when we were talking? It's his third class B win of the year. Yeah, it's his it's his third of the year, and he's been a bit unfortunate because he had a great driver, Paul Ricard, in the French Grand Prix. Should have been six, but the the uh, the, uh, the MG UK failed towards the end of the race. He did finish, but he lost a few places. Mexico as well. He had the he had the shutdown while he was on course for a, a Class B victory, as he liked to call it. So he's lost a couple of uh, of big midfield results this season. Exactly. So it was nice to see a proper points so, and I think it lifted him into the top ten in the championship, didn't it? Yeah, he's nicked tenth in the championship, which uh, which is good for him. And he, I mean, he has ultimately over the course of the season been the second best Renault driver. Uh, but it's been it's been relatively close, and Hulkenberg's not an easy teammate. So, uh, yeah, a, a good season from Sainz, and he does have a tendency to turn in these these sort of very classy race drives. Yeah, I think that was one of his best. So it's good. It's just good because I think he's found it frustrating at times this year, and I think he felt that once he'd got on top of the Renault, he he did narrow that gap to Hulk considerably, which I'd probably agree with as well. So I think to end on a high. I mean, okay, you don't know what Hulkenberg would have done in that race, obviously. Um, had it lasted more than than half a lap, but I, yeah, I can't. You can't, you can't criticise it. But he didn't do enough in qualifying. But once the race started, he, he was pretty faultless. Yeah, he complained of some rear instability in Q two on his final run. He made a mistake on his first Q two run, which uh, put him out in Q two. Charles Leclerc got seventh. Obviously, he ran as high as fourth early on. He made a fairly early stop from the from the hypersofts and. Slipped from first in class B to second behind Sainz. Uh, Strashy played a part in that. And then Sergio Perez, Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen picked up the, the final points. I guess we should say Alonso, this was his, possibly his final Grand Prix. It's certainly his final Grand Prix for now. And it acted like a uh, like a farewell. I hadn't, hadn't noticed. <laughs> yeah, there was all sorts of stuff. He had the special helmet, special livery, all sorts of uh, specialness going on. And then he even had his own special track configuration in the closing stages, it, it seems. But it's a good job his teammate's staying on for another... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, all his, change at McLaren, of course. His teammate's going as well. Did anyone notice? Stoffel van I Dorn did. His, uh, I did. Spotlight. I yeah. went down to the McLaren garage. I stood there to watch Stoffel get into the car for the last time, pull out the garage for the last time. And then I went and did the same. And I did the same for Marcus Ericsson as well. Because I felt... All of the attention was going on Alonso, so I would be the hipster journalist who just was there just to watch the people nobody cares about have their own last little moment as well. And I was speaking to someone, um, uh, I was speaking to someone down at Sauber who, sort of almost unprompted, sort of said, "Bit, bit unfair what they're doing at McLaren, isn't it?" Basically. Okay, Van Dorn isn't a two-time world champion. He's not calling a glittering F1 career to an end, but he is a two-year McLaren driver who's ending his spell. And the suggestion was, well, maybe they could have done a little bit more to balance up 
some of the attention. But I think Vandorn got his own little send-off from the team. It's just in keeping with the last two years, isn't it? But Alonso's the main attraction and Vandorn's the barely even the sideshow that, that, that people don't really notice. Yeah, it's been a it's been a tough time for Van Dorn. I hope we haven't seen the last of him in Formula One. Uh, he's off to Formula E, obviously. Now he's a driver with a, with a lot of bit of ability, but it's a kind of a perfect storm of difficulties he's faced at, at McLaren. And yeah, all the attention has been on on Alonso. And I think it's kind of appropriate that Alonso's final race, given what's happened recently, was an eleventh place, missed out on the points, got a bit belligerent at the end with those those fairly pointless penalties. It, it, nice little bit of radio banter as well. Yeah, that was that <laughs> yeah, was exactly. Yeah, where he's, got his uh, points tally wrong though. Didn't he? He said because um, he was just being a bit, he's just being glib, wasn't he? And he just went, "I've got one thousand eight hundred points." And his engineer said, "Oh well, you know, for me, make it one thousand eight hundred and one." Actually, I think he's got one thousand eight hundred and ninety nine. Oh, Do you reckon he's partying tonight like it's eighteen ninety nine? So, what did they have in eighteen ninety nine? I was about to say, so no electricity. I feel like I'm ma- I my history is massively right. wrong. Yeah, but you're in you're in the early you're in the pi- very pioneering days of racing then. I'm sure he'd have been quick at something. What would you have been doing then? Paris to somewhere in 1899? Yeah, one of the great European road races. Yeah. Fernando would have been good at that. Probably he wasn't driving a car that broke down. Well, he would have been driving a car that broke down because that was a a fact of life. Maybe that's Fernando's problem. He's just a driver from the wrong era. Well, there we go. There we go. I I think he's a driver who would have succeeded in any era because he's he's not... uh, how often do you hear about Alonso talking about the, the style of the car, the, the requirements of the balance not seating him? He's massively adaptable. He's a real hustler, a street fighter of a driver. He's not a classicist. He's a driver who grabs the car by the scruff of the neck, great car control. And that's kind of his his legacy, even though off track, some questionable decisions and not always done everything the, 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 the right way. And that's probably cost him on track when he's on it, which is most of the time, he's a he's a absolutely phenomenal driver. Yeah, he's he's more Rocky Balboa than Apollo Creed, isn't he? He's just sort of gets down and dirty, gets on with it, he hustles and does what he needs to to get the job done. It's not particularly stylish, it's not particularly elegant, but but it, but but he does it. And one thing for, for for me, right at the end after the 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 flag, we had obviously that really nice moment with him, Vettel, and Lewis um, coming round at the end of the the sort of in-lap after the race and did the donuts on the start-finish straight. And it was really cool. It was a really, really cool series of images. And then the donuts were amazing. But just couldn't help watching it, just thinking, it's so sad that this is the only context in how long that we've seen the three of them in shot together. It's it's, it's just sad. Alonso has been reduced to being a, a, a sort of bit of light relief for F1 for the last four years. Well, he's had, what's this? This is five seasons without a win, including the last season with Ferrari. It shows just how bloody box office he is, that he has remained one of F1's most central and influential characters, considering he's been irrelevant on the racing side since 2013. Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, I think no matter what, you're, whether you're a fan of Philando Alonso or you hate the guy, he can be a d- divisive character. I think, I mean, speaking... Personally, I've been there for a lot of his F1 career. It's been a privilege to watch it, watch him race in Formula One. I suspect he might be back. I suspect a driver of that caliber, if he's still interested, you never know what what situations might arise. I don't think it's just McLaren who who, who could need him. So you, you never know. You never know. It'd be great if he did come back, but it's times like this that make me think about the, the kind of general fans and how we have this tendency to see the glory in the past and not realise what's happening in front of our eyes and. The talent that we're seeing from from Lewis and Scott, I think you promised us earlier that we're going to have a podcast on who's the greatest Formula One driver of all time. But Lewis has definitely got to be up there in the conversation. Sebastian Vettel, obviously four time champion, and uh, you know hopefully he's going to pick things up next year with Ferrari, and there's going to be a, a you know an even closer fight between Ferrari and Mercedes, and obviously Fernando Alonso. The, the fact the fact is we'll get to Australia next year, and no one's going to be sat there saying there's a Fernando Alonso shake hole on the grid. Things always thing always move on. That that's the nature of the nature of sport. It'd be great to have him there, but if he's not there, he carry on. Like you say, we've got some uh, some fantastic drivers. There's no lack of uh, of talent on the grid. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about F2 and a few off track matters. But first, I must update everybody on my gaming antics, which I haven't done for a while. Hyperdrome racing reinvented the app I have on my uh, on my phone, which is the uh, 
interesting challenge, strategic racing, but with a bit of a difference because you, you select your, your power-ups and some of these are quite orthodox power boosts. We all know those sort of things. Found a flamethrower the other day. I'm not sure that's within technical regulations. Going a bit Mario Kart now. Yeah, but that's what Formula E is trying to do, of course. And actually, appropriately enough, Daniel Apt is involved in this game. When you go in and do your tutorial at the start, it's Daniel Apt telling you how to how to beat him. Teaching you how to use a flamethrower. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. I never got that from him. I mean, I, I think I got on fairly well with Daniel when I covered Formula E, but he never showed me how to use a flamethrower. <laughs> he only does that for his special hyperdrome friends. So Pierre, you download Pierre, the app. Pierre Gasly and Nico Hulkenberg might like this game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. there was a little bit, little bit of uh, of uh, flame going on in uh, in the race, although they were both keen on uh, things being being extinguished. But yeah, it's it's a it's just basically it's a, it's a, almost a, a racing strategy game, if you like, in that you're not driving the car, but you're you're kind of managing the car. It's boosts, head to head races, online racing, all sorts of all sorts of things. It's a slightly different, it's an unusual type of racing game, I would say. So uh, I would urge everyone to have a go at it. So uh, yeah, download that Hyperdrome, uh, racing reinvented. Lots of very, very quick, fast races. So even if you've got only a couple of minutes, you can get on that or for a, for a longer session as uh, as I've been doing. So uh, yeah, just search for Hyperdrome in the App Store. Well, let's move on to matters in Formula 2 now. Jack Benyon, 2019 Williams F1 driver George Russell. He secured the F2 title. Some style with a victory in the, in the feature race. It'd be a travesty if anything else had happened, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And even before the feature race, the, the pole position that he scored the day before was was the real turning point, I think. Um, if either of the championship hopefuls, either George or, or Alex, had scored that pole position, there's four points on offer for it and it would have swayed things a little bit. Alex, it might have given him a little bit of momentum, a free four points to to take away that 37-point gap from from George. Or for, for George, it was a chance to ex- extend his lead before the race had even started. In the end, it didn't matter because Alex Albon stalled on the grid. Uh, that meant he was about half a lap down. He didn't get a chance to catch up to the the back of the guys under the safety car. Safety car was brought out for another stall, so Alex started eighth on the grid and had to watch his teammate in third, Nicholas Latifi, uh, stall. And then he was crashed into at high speed by Arjun Miney. Luckily, both were okay. Um, Arjun really had no chance. He was coming from 19th on the grid and already built up quite a lot of speed by that point and he just didn't have any chance to to avoid Nicholas. He sort of took the right side of the car off almost. It was, it was a surgical. pretty spectacular crash. Um, yeah, for sure. Lucky, both were okay and uh, they could they were both competing the next day. But George, um, you know, he had, he had a poor start himself and, and fell back to second in that race. Um, but very, very George Russell-like. We've seen him have a few bad starts this season. Um, the F2 clutch is quite tricky to use the starting procedure is quite difficult to operate but George um, we've seen him bounce back time and time again and he fell back behind Nick DeVries uh, the really impressive thing for me was that he made the strategy call um, so there was no engineer involved no no team call um, he actually said to ART on the next lap I'm doing the opposite to what Nick DeVries is doing so be ready uh, it turned out Nick DeVries stayed out in the, in the Prima car George that's the sort of thing you get Fernando Alonso doing in his glory days properly taking over strategy and uh, to do that not just to do that uh, in general, but to do that in a in the midst of a championship fight is is something that takes a lot of guts, and I think that shows a lot of what George is about. Held on to win the race, um, and, and and did a fantastic job in in typical George fashion. That's his seventh win of the year. Equals Stoffel van Dorn and Charles Leclerc's record from from F two and GP two, um, and and just shows really what a strong year he's had. I'm I'm impressed by that because it shows that his attitude to achieving the end goal was to focus on the there and now. Instead of being one of those drivers that goes, oh, well, I need to score this many points or outscore him by this many points and, oh, I'll just do enough. Like, no, come on, be proper. It was, That's it basically was, what he said on the podcast we did in preview that he was you know, trying to do it. In fact, getting the pole was the first... I mean, he almost had one hand on the title at that it's, point. It's a clear target for every weekend and, and that's to go out and win. And you say, you know, every driver should have that, but he genuinely believes that he's going to go out and win every race. He believes he's going to top practice. He believes he's going to put it on pole and he believes he's going to win the race. And quite often he does. And if he doesn't, you speak to him afterwards and he's, t- he's already turned it into a, you know, it, or, already turned it into a goal. So if he's had a bad, uh, a bad start to a race, we've seen it often, quite often happen this year with, things like sensors breaking or engine trouble or, or with the starts. Uh, and every time he's used what track time he has had, even if he's been at the back of the grid, to learn about the car, develop his technique with the tyres to make sure he's looking after those properly. Um, and obviously we've talked about it before. Massive thing for, for Formula 2 is the is the Pirelli tyres. 
unlike F1, they don't get the, the sensors that, that they get. So they can't monitor temperatures and stuff like that during the race. So everything um, from qualifying to turning the tyres on, getting them in the right temperature window to manage them in the race is all done on driver feel. There's no uh, there's no technology involved at all. So it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, George has used his time where he's not been in contention for races to develop his technique and, and work on that. And it's, you know, it's clearly paid off through the season. And we should, of course, say that although he's going head-to-head with Albon for the title, Albon actually lost second in the championship in the end in, in Sunday's sprint race. It's been a it's been a really unusual season because uh, Lando Norris has only won one race, um, but taken lots and lots of podiums and led the championship up to the halfway point. Um, he's obviously gone for the consistent approach. You know, he's tried to maximise his points every weekend, knowing that his car isn't always in contention to win races. Um, Alex kind of came under the radar a little bit. Um, he had three poles earlier in the season that he, he didn't convert into three race wins, but had a good start to the season and you know clearly had a lot of momentum behind him and then had a, a mid-season lull. So Norris and Albon both had a mid-season lull at the same time. Russell went on his winning streak and started to, to real put some points together. So it's been a really uh, unusual season. And to be honest, I could have argued for Alex or Lando to have taken that second place. I don't think either one... Um, you know, had a God-given right to take it. I think both were very, uh, very strong competitors, and it was actually Lando who jumped Alex at the end. All of Alex's problems with the with the stall and um, the consequent starting lower down the order in the in the next race gave Lando that real opportunity. And Lando looked really racy on the Sunday. Struggled a little bit on Saturday with the car setup, but Sunday was a lot. He was a lot quicker, and uh, yeah, took second place. We should obviously point out that. The expectation is that the top three drivers from F2 this year will all be stepping up to F1 next year. We know that Russell's confirmed at Williams and and Norris is confirmed at McLaren, but obviously we're expecting Alex Albon to be uh, confirmed at Toro Rosso as well. Having it looks like he's going to be redrafted into the Red Bull stable that dropped him about what six years ago now. Um, and it's interesting because Albon's been called what did George called him probably the most underrated driver he's come across or the most underrated driver around. And Charles Leclerc, Sauber driver, who is uh, stepping up to Ferrari next season, obviously beat Albon to the GP3 title in, what, 2016? Said that he really hopes that he gets his chance because he feels that he's underappreciated. And I'm just going to do a little check because if we have all three drivers step up, the top three drivers step up to F1, see, that's that's a very, very good thing for for F2 to, to have that. To, to to show it it's worth and I'm I'm just checking to see if that's ever happened before because it that strikes me as a, an an unprecedented sort of result because normally you have you like to think that the the champion's going to step up obviously we've seen plenty of examples where the champion doesn't get to get to F1 but it's a it's a, it's often a mix isn't it Ed you have you know a, a champion or a front running driver and then you have a driver who's maybe got one or two race wins and decent backing and back in your favorite days the pre-super license days you could have anyone yeah unfortunately uh yeah there's a bit of uh, general anarchy now the, the super license points by and large are a good thing there's a little bit of uh perhaps a little bit of tweaking still needs to do it but it is good that it stops those who haven't proved themselves at a decent level from uh from from stepping up um I can see Scott still furiously searching on his on his phone. Let's, well, no, I'm just, I'm just well, having a look because if you like, if well, let, you, you let, say we got three this year, but if you go back like 2016, okay, I know Gasly made in a, a couple of appearances last year, but none of the top six in 2016 stepped up to F1 last year, and then it's just it's just it just shows. I mean, is it an anomaly? Is it the just the fact that they're so good? So you had Van Dorn in 2015, but again, no one else in the top five. Well, these things do go in waves, don't they? And sometimes it's down to what opportunities arise. What's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of instability in the F1. There's been a lot of instability in the F1 driver market this year. I think only two teams have got the same driver side. Correct, I think yeah. it's kind of a, a consequence partly of that and the fact that actually George Russell, Lando Norris, outstanding drivers, Alban are very, very, very good drivers, as we've discussed. So I think that's played a, a big part of it. What? We should say, talking about them stepping up, well, Scott, you can get back to us if you find a, a top three. I found all, two, all two when Palmer and Nazar were in the top three in 2014. Yep. I know, because Palmer didn't, did he? Of course, he spent a, oh, year, he had a year on the side. Oh, he a tester, didn't he? So, yeah. No, I'm wrong. Uh, well, well, if you find scenes. a three, uh, on, three, let us know. Um, obviously, Jack, 
Russell's teammate next year is going to be Robert Kubica. So he's up against a driver who is sort of vastly experienced and a Grand Prix winner, but also sort of a sort of a rookie almost in his in his second career. Do you think that's a, a good thing for, for George Russell to be up against a driver like Kubica? I think George has already decided that Kubica is irrelevant in, in his head. I think, you know, George, all the noise George has been making before taking this Williams seat is that he wants to get in there while the team is maybe not performing as it should be and really lead that team from the front. And he's been very clear in that. Um, you know, we talked a lot about how George got the seat with his PowerPoint and all that kind of stuff. The, the goal for George has been very clear. He's not just taking an F1 seat. He's going in there to lead that team and to, to try and steer it in the right direction. And uh, I think at this point, he's probably now starting to think a little bit about Kubitz and how he's been announced. But yeah, like I said, George George's aim has always been to, to lead that team. But it'll be good to have someone who's so experienced like Kubitz alongside him. Obviously, uh, a big gap between Kubitz's last time competing in Formula 1 and, and coming back now. So uh, he's going to be very green, isn't he? And especially in this this V6 turbo hybrid era he's going to be um he's going to be lacking a little bit of a little bit of the experience of that um but he's a very experienced driver and he's obviously proven to Williams that he is good enough to take his seat there's no way Williams would put him in that car if they didn't think he was going to deliver the goods so uh, we've heard Claire Williams talk at, at length about how she thinks she's putting two very talented drivers in her car and you know like I said Kibitz is going to provide that experience where George is going to provide that kind of youthful optimism of um, you know, getting in the factory and, you know, he's already uh, making it a point to speak to every single person who works for the team and, and you know, just little things like that that are going to try and, you know, energise people a little bit and that, that kind of youthful exuberance that, you you know, can help um, balance out the, the inexperience, if you like. Well, unbeknownst to you, Jack, there was a little ripple of excitement in Jack, in, uh, Jack, in Scott Mitchell's corner of the room. What don't you, don't what ever did... make that mistake ever again. <laughs> I'll try not to. What, what have you discovered, Scott? I've I've discovered the last time it has happened before, the top three. Do you know what year? That put us out of our misery. I'm going to tell you the year. The year that they finished in the top three in GP2 was 2009. 2009. Can you name the drivers? So it would have been Nico Hulkenberg, who stepped up to F1 with Williams. I'll put us out of our misery. I can't think at this time. Vitaly Petrov. Oh, of course, yeah. And Lucas Degrassi. Ah, yes, with uh, with Manor, yeah. yeah. Virgin. Yeah, it's, it's it's twenty to three. We need to move on to Robert Kubica himself, Scott. Now we know one hundred percent Kubica can drive an F one car well. He's perfectly up to it. But the question is, what level can he be expected to achieve? We've seen a little bit of what he can do. He was out again in Abu Dhabi in free practice. He's done three FP ones this year. He's done a few tests. He's testing again this week in the in the tire test. W- what can we expect from him? Well, it's it's very difficult to 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 know, and and it's very difficult to know how to judge him as well. Because I, I asked him this this weekend, because we do have a Grand, another Grand Prix winner returning to the grid. I think a veteran of seventy six starts, stints with uh, works teams, um, a, a world champion lost. That that's how everyone always viewed him. But this was a different driver and person. This was someone who drove in a different way. This driver wasn't driving seventy percent left-handed. He wasn't his his description. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not me just like pulling a number out of my backside. That's what how how, how Robert I think explained to you was, yeah, was how he, how he's changed his uh, how he's changed his driving and so so he's a different driver and f one's different uh, and i i know that it doesn't maybe change too much from from the outside but the cars are completely different the tech's different the challenge is different and and the quality of opposition has has moved on from from his day as well he's up against a better caliber of driver now so and he's not going to have it easy at williams going up against george russell because he's going up against the worst possible opposition which is an absolutely brilliant young driver desperate to prove himself so Robert's not going to have it easy. I don't. I. I personally still don't know how to judge him. I. I think you can. I. I think we need to start the season accepting that in he's a rookie in some ways, not a complete rookie. Absolutely not because of that experience that comes from everything that he's he's done in the past, before his accident and since then. Because it's not like he's he's done nothing since then, and he has had a lot of preparation. He has had a full season as development driver this year. So that so as far as what what he tells us there are no excuses but he insists that he wouldn't have the chance if the William, Williams didn't believe he would be competitive 
how competitive and whatever target he set himself, whatever he thinks is an acceptable level of him target, he's the only one he really knows. And and actually, I'm not entirely sure he knows exactly how much he can expect. He points out that he knows what it takes to be a top driver, but that was when he was a top driver. And the jury's going to be out on whether he can get to that again uh, next year with with, with how, how he has to drive now. Kibitzer will not get to the level he was at. He was that good. He was world champion material. Even just being away for eight years will make that very, very different. Now, he can be a little bit down from that level and still be very, very, very effective. So that's not me putting him down. Kibitzer, I always remember watching him trackside at Monaco in 2010 in the run-out. Absolutely incredible. You know, what he could do with the car, sensation. He was tremendous that, uh, that season with, uh, with, with Renault. So I'm coming from a position of that, you know, I'm, I was firmly back then and still now I'll tell anyone that if he carried on, he'd have been world champion, if he, provided he got half a sniff of it in the right car. So given he has had to readapt, he, I am sort of treating him as a, as a new driver. And he's also a driver who's got a slightly different objective, shall we say, to every, everyone else. You know, he absolutely lives and breathes motorsport. Kibitza, the the sort of F1 dream was pretty much taken away from him, and he's through, you know, so many surgeries, sheer determination, focus, amazing amount of work. He's managed to get back on the grid, and he will race in Formula One next year, and he will be effective, and and he will be a perfectly credible Grand Prix driver at worst, even if the season goes the, as badly as anyone could imagine it would do. That the the basement for the level he, he's at is still perfectly credible, which is which is sensational. Um, I think it's fanciful to expect him to be able to be 20, 2010 Kibitza I think just it's, because of how good he was. I think it's great to see him come back. Um, That's brilliant. And absolutely fantastic to see uh, a young driver like George Russell getting the chance as well. But what that has given us is a lack of a uh, you know a current benchmark, isn't it? That's uh, true. Yeah. I.e., you know, obviously it's never going to happen, but if you put Hamilton in the Williams, then you could get a real benchmark of where Kibitz is at, couldn't you? But with, with Russell, we don't know what we're going to see. He's a guy coming into F1 um, with with not much experience. You you really lack in that proper benchmark for for Robert, aren't you? They're both going to be pushing each other on, and and that will help both of them, I'm sure. But yeah, I think to evaluate where he's at is going to be very difficult next year because you know even if he is fantastic in the Williams and he you know he continuously out qualifies George Russell, that may say more about George Russell than it does about Robert Kubica. And without that proper benchmark, it's going to be difficult to say. It's a bit to me like um, when Thierry Henry went back to Arsenal. Very different circumstances. It wasn't like Henri was away from Arsenal because of injury and and spent eight years not playing professional football or anything like that. But just in terms of that, when I remember, I remember when he when he played for Arsenal and he and he, and he appeared for the first time. And I just I I just had you know you have that caliber of player in your head because you just remember them like that, and then you watch them again, and it's like. I know I know I should be expecting less because it's different and he's older and things have changed but I can't help but be disappointed and it's like that whenever there's anyone goes away so the fact that Cubis has been away for eight years he's not raced a single seater in, in, in that time driven them yes tested F1 cars yes but he's not raced a single seater since then He's not done a great deal of circuit racing since then. I've done very, very, very little at all. Because he didn't make a circuit racing comeback until 2016, 2016 Magello 12 hours. Yeah, exactly, in a GT car. So he's been in competitive motorsport since his accident, but F1's totally different. And you're right, Ed. I, I think it is unrealistic to expect and view him in, in, in that same way. And I should point out... He doesn't care in the slightest how what we're saying right now. He's like, here for he, his own he, reasons. He doesn't care how he how we judge him or how anyone judges him because he knows he says he's got in his head what he thinks is a good job and he thinks if he achieves that he'll make everybody happy. And I hope he does because it's such a good story and it's one of those rare moments where I don't look at a driver who's got a seat for reasons other than talent because ultimately we shouldn't forget that Robert is bringing money. About 12 million euros. Yeah, so he wouldn't be in that seat if he didn't have money. So Robert's as much of a pay driver as Sirotkin was this year to all intents and purposes in, in, in 2019. But I don't view him any less for that. All I can really see is an incredible, incredible human story. And 
an amazing sporting one as well. So all credit to him for getting to this point. And I really, really hope that even if he's not, even if he can never be Grand Prix winning spec Kubitzer again or to the 2010 calibre, I hope we see him in, in enjoying the experience that he's earned for himself because he, he has, he has, as you say, properly grafted for this. It's rare that sentiment creeps into F1. So I think everyone should savour that story while it lasts. No, it's 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 brilliant what he's done. I'm sure he'll acquit himself well. Uh, he's perfectly capable of uh, of doing it, and I think we just have to be, just have to understand what this journey's been about for him. It's it's incredible what he's done, and to be able to race competitively in Formula One, which I've no doubt he will do next season, is is absolutely sensational sensational achievement. The thing I always say with Kibitza is you can't be underestimated. If anyone can do it. It's it's him because it, you know it looked like he wasn't going to get a race seat several times. You know, six weeks ago it looked pretty unlikely, and even just to raise the money, etc., takes a takes a lot of determination. So uh, all credit to him and, and 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 good luck for him. I think it's uh, it's a very very positive story for Formula One and for and for him. Finally, Jack, we should briefly mark the passing of GP3. This was the last GP3 race, of course. GP3 started in 2010. So this is what eight nine seasons we've uh, we've had of it. So is this sort of it's sort of goodbye, but it's sort of not goodbye, really, is it? It's uh, yes. I'm quite well. Marcus Simmons tweeted me to say uh, that he didn't think it was the end of GP3. Um, so it's it's caused a little bit of uh, debate between people as to what is actually happening, I suppose. But for me, it is that's that is the end of GP3. It's gone. There's a new car coming. It's going to change its name. It's going to be FIA Formula Three. Uh, we're going to see a merge between the old GP3 series and the European Formula 3 series. So uh, a bit more of a you know a ladder created um, between Formula 4, Formula 3, F2, Formula 1, obviously. That's the idea. A uh, new car was launched on Friday. Uh, has it's, got some, quite, it's got quite a GP3 vibe, hasn't it? Yes, it's very much based on the GP3 car. That is that is that was always the intention. Um, the engine is very similar. Um, DRS is being implemented, uh, but there's more aero, um, you know, to fit in with with F3. Um, that they've worked very hard to to use that, and there's a halo. Obviously, it's uh, steel, not titanium, like it is on the F2 car, so a little bit heavier. So it'll be interesting to see how the weight actually comes out. They've not actually set a final weight for the car yet, so it'll be interesting to see that because the extra weight in the F2 car has really made a massive difference to to things like tyres. So. That, that should play a big part. But yeah, we saw uh, Antoine Hubert pick up the championship. He's Renault affiliated. He's not a Renault Formula 1 junior. He's just affiliated to the Renault Formula 1 team. And um, basically his his target for the year from Renault was to to win this championship. And then there was, was going to be talks about him joining the you know the junior programme. So I'm sure those talks will be ongoing. Um, he was pretty much nailed on for a, a test in, in Formula 2 this week in the postseason test. I believe that was with MP Motorsport. Uh, there was a bit of talk yesterday about uh, that potentially changing and maybe with a, with a different team. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this week plays out. But he took the championship on Saturday in the in the feature race. Uh, Nikita Mazapan was his his rival, uh, someone we know from free practices and, and testing in Formula 1 with, with Force India. Um, Mazapan got a 10-second penalty for a, a track limits infringement. He didn't go to the right-hand side of the bollard uh, that comes after turn eight. So that 10-second penalty took him out of the running. Hubert uh, finished third on the road in the end and that was enough for him to, to seal the uh, title. So we, we will leave it there. I would suggest everybody head to autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula 1, F2, GP3, the whole world of motorsport. Plenty of writing from Scott Mitchell and Jack Bennion to be seen there. And also check out our Plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists on all sorts of topics. Also check out sister titles, F1 Racing Magazine, Out Monthly and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The is it morning yet? Deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.